0: Anne Ackerman is one of the co-founding members of Ukraine's key environmental NGO, the Centre for Environmental Initiatives' EcoAction, and a professional in the field of energy and the environment with experience in NGOs as well as the energy design and research sectors in Eastern and Central Europe. Her main areas of expertise include energy efficiency in buildings, renewable energy, climate change mitigation, and policy advocacy. Between 2016 and 2018, she managed the expert energy policy reform group of Ukraine's largest civil society platform, the Reanimation Package of Reforms. Anna is a policy analyst for the Green Reconstruction of Ukraine at the IISD. Anna, welcome to the channel.
1: Thank you very much, Jonathan.
0: And this is one of the unusual circumstances where I've actually met you in real life before doing the podcast. Normally, it's the other way around. So we've already had, I think, some really interesting conversations. And the trigger for today's conversation was actually seeing you at a, an event run by the Ukrainian Institute in, in, in London. Um, what has changed since there? Because we were very worried a couple of weeks ago uh, that the Zaporizhia nuclear plant um, could be the next example of ecocide or environmental terrorism that Russia inflicts.
1: Well, the, there hasn't been much change in there. Of course, we all are... Um... I wouldn't say expecting, but we understand that indeed this separation nuclear power plant can be uh, the next target for, for Russia. And uh, this is clearly stated now by uh, Ukrainian president, uh, the government, and repeated uh, many times uh, uh, per day, I would say. Um, so we do, well, what do we do? We now try to do everything in Ukraine to make sure that the uh, uh, consequences of the Kakhovka Dam uh, disaster are felt as, as little as possible by the population, which is pro- probably impossible because it becomes an international disaster. And while well, um, trying to prevent also in any ways possible the uh, possible next large uh, environmental catastrophe, at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Understanding understand now that Russia is um, really capable of anything. Uh, it's actually interesting how we are still being surprised that Russia can be doing, you know very bad things after everything we've seen already uh, by now. But it looks like after the Kahoff um destruction, which actually is the largest uh, environmental catastrophe um, for Ukraine in decades. um yeah, now we we do we do kind of understand that. Uh, it could
0: get even worse. And I've addressed this in a couple of interviews, but I think you're uniquely placed to comment on this because you you interact uh, with the media, you're an expert in the field. Um, there's two problems, I think, with the media coverage. One is the short-term coverage. It didn't get the kind of clarity uh, and real emphasis on the immediate aftermath. And there was a whole two sides Kind of game going on in the media, uh, which sort of reduced the impact of this man-made, intentional catastrophe, terrorist act. I mean, it's quite clear to label a terrorist act, but the media held off from from labelling it as such. That's the yeah. short-term problem in media coverage. Then there's the longer-term problem because the environmental implications. Uh, on agriculture, land, uh, on the many villages and lifestyles that are affected, as well as unique ecosystems. These are the sort of longer-term effects, and the media isn't particularly good at covering drawn-out long-term impacts. But as you're an expert in the field, I wanted your take on that and, of course, to discuss what those long-term impacts might actually be.
1: Well, there is there is a lot to talk about. and Indeed, as far as the media coverage is con- concerned, I think we are really looking at what's happening in ukraine already first of all media is getting tired and probably this is one of the reasons why the coverage was so low although for ukraine this was a big deal right um and um at the same time there is actually so much damage already done that kovka it is the largest um largest damage again to the environment done so far but it also depends how you categorize this because well at echo action we've been tracking damages to the environment and the cases of damages to the environment since February 24th last year. And in public sources, we already um, found, discovered more than 1,000 of such uh, different cases of damages to the environment. And they were, they've arrived from um, forest fires caused by, um, yeah, basically shooting and, and shelling, uh, to pollution of waters, to pollution of soils, Um, And here, of course, we actually will experience many uh, environmental, negative environmental consequences all at the same time, such as water pollution and soil pollution, and the absence of fresh water for huge territory, um, no irrigation and so on. Uh, However, I think the Kachovka case is especially... um, it's, It's a different story, and we have to look also at it from the historical perspective. It's absolutely disastrous what actually has happened. And we understand that it should have never happened. Like No one should have ever done. And it is an international crime. It is a war crime. And at the same time, the way the Kachovka Dam was actually built during the Soviet times, yeah, that was also a crime in itself because it was the Stalinist idea that to build this dam, the only goal to, to, to build the dam, uh, of course, was well, the eco- like economic profits and and the irrigation for the region, but the idea was to tame nature and to show the human power over over the nature. Lots of houses were back then destroyed. Uh, people were left without homes and almost without warning. Uh, they just had to leave very quickly. And um, yeah, the dam destroyed everything. And also, the dam destroyed Ukraine's unique history and heritage because our Cossacks were living there for for centuries and now we're actually rediscovering the remains of very old uh boats which may date 1000 years you know um so it's kind of absolutely amazing just it's mind-blowing to see this sort of things happening and many environmentalists are now saying that you know the disaster the 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 Dam was not even supposed to be there in the first place. Um, but then, of course, it was not supposed to be then uh, destroyed. But as it's already happened that way, perhaps the we should we should leave it be and 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 uh, try to restore what we actually had. Because again, those areas are very important for Ukraine. But this is the conversation we may have with you also later on because it connects directly to how Ukraine will be actually rebuilding with what kind of ideas. Um. And definitely, in terms of the uh, long-term consequences, I mean, we can we can talk about many. Um, the one of the things that we know for sure is that the hydropower plant, the Kachovka hydropower plant, it had it it had more than 150 thousand tons of oil there. So we had we have oils basically in the water. We have dead bodies of animals. We have nature protected areas. Um, absolutely you know, f- flooded and without possibility to return them, some unique species that may die out and so on. Um, you can definitely find that out there. Um, and indeed, the media, I hope the media would actually be covering this because it's a long-term perspective. And also from the perspective of that, that does not only touch Ukraine because in the end, all of the polluted waters, they actually go all in the Black Sea. In the Black Sea, it's not Ukraine's sea. You know, it's the sea of many countries. Uh, so others would also feel this effects of 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 this uh, this the destruction, and um, yeah, we we can only we can really see uh, that now. Actually, some of the media are coming back to that, so it's good. I see some big big media are talking about it, but of course, we can only uh, expect that as Ukraines. Struggle and the Russia's aggression is now viewed a bit like a Star Wars movie. From when you look at it from abroad, you you only wait for the next big disaster to happen. But this, this is the the kind of feeling that Ukrainians have, and this is very unfortunate because everything we need to be doing is actually to try to avoid the next disaster and to finally win and to finally start rebuilding. This is the in, in living peace, of course. So this is the the big idea,
0: and I think that will come to reconstruction because. Uh... The concept of victory um, and the fact that some people will try to put limits on that, and of course it's in Russia's interest to to freeze the conflict, and that has a big impact on on reconstruction, funds, stability, and so on. But let's turn back to the dam, because I think the eco-terrorism aspect is an interesting one here. Uh, and as you say, why people are shocked every time it happens when perhaps they ought not to be. It seems that not just since the full scale war, but actually over the last couple of decades, Russia has shown that it can weaponize anything and everything, whether that be light, fuel, heat, uh, water, everything is a potential weapon. We know that gas, uh, when the gas was switched off during the Ukrainian winter, uh, that is a form of of terrorism or blackmail as well. So none of this should be a huge surprise. And you mentioned a sort of over a thousand documented uh, ecological catastrophes on various scales as a direct consequence of the war. And because Russia started the war, they are culpable for everything. But How many out of these ecological sort of issues that are being logged, how many of them do you think are intentional? Are this sort of ecological bomb that Russia has been using? Or how many of them are sort of unintended consequences uh, of the invasion?
1: This is something that we actually discovered uh, last year. I was uh, telling how we started documenting damages to the environment. and we very soon reached you know many hundreds and the what what we what we thought that is that with all of that information and of course we we saw that other organizations started doing also similar things also collecting this information about all of this um uh, uh, huge damages to the environment done um we thought all of that could go to international courts in the end and and in litigation and to make, to make russia pay this was the uh, the idea right um And then we actually discovered that uh, internationally to have anything to be proved as an environmental crime it had actually uh, to be proved to be intentional so it means that whatever um, whatever kind of um, damages is done to the environment it has to be done with an intention to do the damage to the environment not to the other side of the conflict you know, not to destroy a particular facility, but actually to make the damage to the environment. And this is kind of almost impossible to prove. And perhaps the Kahovka dam uh, destruction. Um, this is where the possibility of actually proving this may um, may be found. So we will see if if that will be possible. With everything else, it looks like, if you look from afar, from the perspective of international jurisdiction, it looks like it's just a part of the... a normal, let's say, part of a conflict. Um, Because you always have, you know, uh, oil depots exploding with the black fumes. We were shocked to see that for the first time. We thought, oh my God, this is air pollution, but also what what would people be breathing and so on. But then destruction of the tanks and then the uh, pollution by heavy metals of all the soils and so on. Um, that is a part of any uh, any war on this planet. Mm, so it is complicated. However, again, returning to the Kachovka Dam story, is that with this, and I think this is the important part to tell now, the international community starts uh, uh, coming back to the concept of ecocide uh, and demanding that the ecocide could also be one of the uh international crimes reviewed by the international criminal court for now there is four and environmental crimes are not part of these international legislation so they can be considered as um crimes so environmental crimes can be in part uh considered as a crime against humanity but it's not that direct so if we would have actually environmental crimes also there but ecocide specifically that would help a lot and there is um a whole movement actually where they um um, lawyers who already proposed the tax of what ecocide could be. And more than that, Ukraine, in its national legislation, already has definition of ecocide. And we definitely see that with the Kakhovka Dam, it's definitely the ecocide committed by Russia. Of course, it would need to go to the court and so on, but it does look like a very a strong legal case. So hopefully with what's happening to Russia, we may be able to push the international community to finally act on this. Um, And hopefully that would also help other countries to deal with not only conflict situations, not only wars and environmental damages uh, during the wars, but also anything starting from uh, consequences of climate change uh, to uh, biodiversity destruction and so on. So this could actually be also a tool, a mechanism that could be used even in peacetime. Um, We'll see if if that works, Uh, there is, I think, again, there is this momentum that is now gained, uh, or regained, um, with with the Kachovka Dam destruction. Um, And it will be also important for Ukraine, because if that mechanism is in place, we will have one extra tool to actually, again, have Russia pay. Um, And why it is important uh, to pay for the damages to the environment, because actually it's very difficult to calculate the damages, uh, to put the price tag on them. Um, it's easy to say, okay, there is no forest anymore. Uh, well, let's replant the forest. How much would that cost approximately, you know, and, and to to uh, to try to kind of put a price. But what about all of the species that uh, would not be there anymore? What about all of the indirect impacts on the population? Uh, with the, for example, impact on, on health, uh, pressure on the uh, national health system through the polluted water, polluted soils and so on. These are all indirect losses, so you have to actually have some methodology to be able to calculate that included include it in this price, because these are these long-term damages. We are we started to discuss about right, so it's not, of course, only about directly environment. It's also it also actually impacts the humans and all of the next generations. Um, I'll, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. I'll come back to that because I think uh, there's there's two sort of questions that arise from that. We'll we'll come back to that one in a minute, because and that's a huge question, and it's one that possibly can't you know can't be put within that framework um but the first one is that i think you know a comment one of my guests last week made was that ukraine you know we've been framing the narrative ukraine's fighting for survival for its land for its people um against genocide and so on and the speaker uh made a point that Ukraine is fighting for a lot more. You're fighting for universal values. These aren't just benefits uh, to Ukraine and its people. They are. But you're fighting for universal values which are, you know, inherent to the European uh, and British lifestyle, the Western lifestyle. Um, And when you frame this idea of new new, uh, legislation around ecocide, Again, it frames it that Ukraine is suffering directly, but what you're fighting for are a universal set of values uh, that would then apply to other conflicts and other regions of the world and actually progress civilization forward.
1: I do think it is, yeah, it's exactly what you were saying. But also if you look at the most recent surveys, just like a week ago, um, I talked with the researchers Uh, and the Swiss Institute, who did the survey um, asking people in Switzerland and in Ukraine about their view of the dangers of climate change, um, how important was was for them the nature protection, uh, transition to to, uh, cleaner energy solutions and so on. And it was fascinating actually to see um, that the numbers were practically the same. There was not much difference. So let's say more than 70 percent of swiss do care about climate change they consider something should be done about it the same uh, number of ukrainians uh, would think the same um even in times of work because this was was a very recent survey right Right. and it also feels for us for people who work in the environmental sector that now people feel as strong as never that they actually need to protect the environment because they see all of these consequences of, of of the Uh, of the war um, and of destruction happening around them. So they understand how important things are. And these are very concrete things. Um, This is is the clean water, clean soils, the forests, everything that was around them is not there anymore. So uh, this comes together in one picture. And when we talk about actually climate change, and I think here, um, it's also a very strong message that Russia is financing this war uh, through basically experts of their fossil fuels. And all of the discussions about, you know, uh, trying to do everything to prevent climate change, 1.5 degrees warming and so on. Yes, of course, it's hard for many people to comprehend what does this actually mean? But we all know that fossil fuels are causing climate change and we definitely see how the fossil fuels, in the end, transform into weapons that kill people. Um, And this is why it's important to finally, and and I mean, we can actually see the, actions taken by many countries already since last year. They understood that it's important to speed up the energy transition um, because of this. Uh, Let's say thanks to Russia. Um, And hopefully this will be a good trend. And also hopefully this will be a a good trend to rebuild Ukraine. Uh, Because rebuilding Ukraine with fossil fuels will look strange if you look at the cause of this war.
0: Yeah, we'll come to that in a minute. The fuel balance and, of course, nuclear uh, plays a very important part in uh, you know the balance of energy in Ukraine at the moment, um, and obviously demand for electricity is a lot lower at the moment than it is during peacetime. There's millions of people abroad, and, uh, and many cities even without uh, sort of fuel. Um, but the question I wanted to come to, I think, is about sustainability of territories because at the moment these conversations are going on about rebuilding Ukraine, and to an extent, they're based on the assumption that Ukraine will regain all, uh, most or if not all, of its legal territories. And that would include Donbass. Um, and of course, the maximalist aims would include Crimea as well. But with the Kohovka Dam explosion and the destruction of infrastructure, there has to be a uh, there's 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 a sort of elephant in the room, isn't there? Which is that certain regions that have been devastated, uh, especially the eastern region and Crimea, it may be very difficult using standard economic logic to to rebuild those areas. It may be that the the rebuilding and re-energising the economy happened far faster uh, in the western territories that have also you know suffered less damage. How should Ukraine get around that and actually? Does that question need to be openly discussed, you know, whether a, a depopulation of certain areas is an inevitable outcome uh, of the destruction that's taken place?
1: I think this this is one of the most complicated questions we would have. Well, we don't we will not only have to be thinking about in some time, but I already start thinking about now. We have the Ministry for Restoration um, now that is working on certain methodologies already. Thinking about how to prioritize reconstruction projects because Ukraine is uh, fighting Russia while rebuilding uh, at the same time. Um, and um, it's very hard to actually prioritize already, you find a proper methodology. But imagining once all the territories are back, Ukraine restores its territorial integrity. So, Donetsk, Luhansk regions are back. Have Sons Crimea, and the level of devastation will be dramatic. So, we we discussed about Kavkovka Dam, right? And actually, um, many, uh, well, in many sources, you can find information about all the damages uh, made since 24th of February last year. But what about all the damages um, done to the eastern regions of Ukraine since 2014? These are absolutely horrific. And the researchers who are actually trying to look at, at those, they did not have access to those territories. So almost no one did, right? Um, and why am I talking about this? Because the eastern Ukraine is this huge industrial um, well, territory, the heritage also, let's say, of not only Soviet times, but even pre-Soviet times, with lots of coal and metal uh, and the cities who were built around that, around uh, big big industries Uh, and we had lots of coal mines which since 2014 were flooded Uh, with all of the toxic water pollution that came out of that. uh, They are flooded because it's actually very expensive to pump out the water which you have to do when you properly close the mine or you don't take care of it. It's very expensive so Russia did not want to spend a single cent on that so we have flooded coal mines and we have lots of, you know, facilities, industrial facilities abandoned with also lots of pollution, we don't even know what's happening there, so once we see that, we come back there, we would be actually asking, you know, do we even want to to do anything with all of that pollution? Do we actually have resources uh, to do that? And I think it's very... um, it's very important to look at the Ukraine recovery conference that happened in London just just in June this year, right where actually we met with you within also these events happening around this conference. Um, all, most of the um, most of the discussions were around private sector investments or international uh, um, support for Ukraine reconstruction and so on. But who would pay for all of the damages done to the environment? And we actually talking, according to the estimates of Ukrainian Ministry uh, for Environment Protection, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars of, of damages to the environment. This is not something that could bring money because it's not a business case. So who would, who would, you know, who would pay for uh, rehabilitation of those lands if 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 ever? So, and especially when well, this is what we are started from, right? To prioritize, how do you prioritize between helping to build up the cities where you have lots of internally displaced persons, they need to have economic activity, infrastructure for them and so on. And between these indeed abandoned areas in the East, and then between also managing all of these consequences of the Kakhovka Dam disaster in the South and trying to adapt the agriculture to the new realities, um, find solution to get the fresh water and so on. Um, and I think it makes sense at least from my perspective, it would make sense to think about people first, um to look at the human human side to make sure that people live um, in the you know better environment, better infrastructure, but also healthily where they are um and indeed, if some territories are left abandoned uh, for for generations that may totally happen in Ukraine.
0: And, uh, you know, an example could be there, the trade-off between, say, looking at uh, Azovstal, you know, the vast steel plant that formed part of a critical uh, battle that held Russian forces at Beige, uh, you know, in, in Mariupol, Um it's going to be a difficult equation isn't it because if you were to invest a certain amount of money it could be you know billions if not tens of billions as you say into uh, high tech industries they could scale very quickly at a very high margin they're not dependent on a single area that, you know people can even work remotely and and those are sort of very viable whereas you take that money and put it into uh, let's say cleaning up and then rebuilding you know massive steelworks the margins on those kind of products internationally are very low anyway, and there's huge international competition. Um, it wouldn't be as attractive to a private investor to do that, uh, whereas invest somewhere where there's high returns. So, if that plant hadn't been destroyed, then then maybe it would still be an attractive uh, investment opportunity, but not not in the state it's at, and that's. That's going to be a real problem for most of heavy industry, because not only do you have to rebuild the plants, you might actually have to clean up a lot of toxic waste uh, first.
1: Well, uh, absolutely. You're right. And and uh, it would definitely be uh, for investors much easier to actually build up somewhere where you, you don't have to clean up, right? Where the government, which is looking there in that direction already, they want to provide as much, uh, well, as favourable conditions as possible for any investments in pay at the and it makes sense when the economy is going down. Um, how do you you know you have to uh, deal with the situation? You have to make sure that the um, you return to at least some normal. Um, but also in London actually the Ukrainian recovery conference, uh, our government was prese- uh, was uh, presenting uh big numbers in possible GDP growth and expected GDP growth of Ukraine and of course it makes sense that Ukraine has the huge potential. It would depend where we move um in yeah, indeed cleaning up some territories would be a big a big deal. but then what is? Also, as important is a part of your question too, is where Ukraine would be moving to which type of the economy. Um, For the moment, we've been largely a resource base uh, for Europe, for the West, um, actually for for many countries out of the West too, right? with our agriculture products and uh, food exports, but also raw uh, steel and iron that was actually exported and then it was and then it was transformed into the steel according to the EU standards, but already somewhere in Italy, right? So the, the plants were there while Ukraine was uh, doing the dirty job at all of these very old factories, like the typically the Azov-style. And what the government is now suggesting is that uh, all of those things that we exporting that were not necessarily done to the, the top-notch best standards in the world, those would become much better. So Ukraine could actually be competitive, um, maybe also in the field of steel, but that would be a green steel. This is what the government is is saying, that they want, uh, they see Ukraine as a a green hub, uh, so uh, producing green steel, perhaps green hydrogen, green ammonia, and so on. Um, And I think it's a good idea. Um, At the same time, it's still based a lot about who Ukraine has has been, you know, for decades. And uh, we are still like in some sort of transformative thinking, um, but do we actually want to keep all of that? Uh, it makes sense because the groups, the business groups for working there, they're already there, the largest ones, you know, but do we actually want to add up something new? At the same time, becoming some kind of an energy uh, energy green hub, that, that would make sense. It's just that we should not only focus on experts, but also to see what kind of products we can be producing in Ukraine for the Ukrainian market, which will be very big, especially for rebuilding the country, for reconstruction. And we could definitely be, and this is this part of the government's uh, ideas, I actually really like that Ukraine, for example, could be producing some of the equipment that now everybody needs in the world, maybe solar PV panels, maybe wind turbines, maybe heat pumps, isolation materials, and so on. Uh, And that would make us unique. So not just be sending abroad all of the raw materials that we have, but actually to producing um, uh, products uh, much higher in the value chains, uh, where Ukraine would become an equal partner with other countries. But here we would have to be actually fighting for investments, even with Poland, who at the moment has all of the best conditions you can even imagine right? for the for this kind of investment. So well, how do we actually achieve that? And this is a very big question. Um, and of course, managing this and at the same time, making sure that people, the Ukrainians come back home and that they actually would uh, would be inspired to come back to this Ukraine with a new vision, new thinking, uh, who could be working in this sort of new industries, facilities and so on. Uh, this will be kind of, yeah, we, we, need, we have many questions, many complicated questions to uh, intelligence to solve. Um, but at the same time, I think we are moving in the right direction. Uh, well, let's see what next year at the recovery conference the uh, the big vision would be. Uh, but uh, yeah, the ideas are already, some ideas are already there. That's, that's for sure.
0: And I think one thing people have seen through this conflict, one thing that really has landed for those who observe it is that Ukrainians have proven to be very innovative Um you know, in the way they organize, definitely. And maybe you have to really be a Ukraine watcher to see the the sort of behaviors there in teams and so on. But people have seen, you know, almost everyone would have seen the footage of drones being adapted, technology being adapted, of Ukrainians being able to take you know dozens and dozens of different standards of western military kit and somehow you know training themselves in record time and bringing it all together into a sort of cohesive fighting force of course there's going to be a little bit of propaganda that sort of papers over there, there will always be mistakes friendly fire etc and they've kept those stories very effectively out of the media nonetheless i think everyone has been astounded by this innovative behavior uh, of Ukrainians. And that bodes well for a sort of green, tech-driven, innovative economy.
1: I, I do agree with you. And and there is also something more, I would add, to this um, the sparkle that Ukrainians have in themselves. Uh, they are very good, um, and this is something that really... Um, helped us actually go through through um, the, the most challenging times in history is that people are very good when there is some, uh, some risk, you know, there, <laughs> to take the risk, um, and definitely not be dictated too much for, uh, by someone, what you're supposed to do, you know, to go ahead yourself, um, and that is, um, and that comes, and I think this is very uh, underlying big transformation that happened to Ukraine in the last 10 years. Was the um, decentralization reform, uh, and I really want to draw your attention to that and actually look at that how it happened because many say that it this is something that actually helped Ukraine to go through the first weeks and the first months of Russia's invasion. Um, this resilience, where did it come from? It came from the fact that since 2014, through this decentralization reform, um, the local communities, they received much more power, financial power also, Um, there were transparent elections that happened, you know, a few times uh, during during these 10 years, where the mayors were the people um, who were elected by, by the community, who had the trust of the community, who had time to show how they could transform the community through certain projects, and some of them actually became the heads of the territorial defense units when Russia started coming up from the from the north, for example. Uh, and people followed them, you know, on the side. So it was, of course, we we know the famous um, video with Zelensky, who said he was there together with the government. It was also important, and as important was the presence of the of the mayors of the local governors also on the place where everybody felt, everybody like felt that they were you know have the support and um and so this resilience of ukrainians it's a lot about this that locally they could act and locally they had this this power so they knew what it meant and it's interesting also how things are changing and how they how they also showed up in different sectors uh through russia's invasion um Within the same line. So Ukraine has this huge energy system that was built in the built up in the Soviet times with huge hydropower plants. You know, we know now the Kachovka Dam, but there were many along the Dnieper. We have four um nuclear power plants who before 24th of February were producing half of all of the electricity in Ukraine. Um, we have big thermal power plants and so on. And all of those, of course, became the main target of Russia's attacks uh, this the last autumn and winter. Um, and at the same time, we saw how um, in, in the beginning of Russia's invasion, people who had solar panels on their roofs, um, or for example, a solar cooperative in, in, in the north of Ukraine, in one of the cities near, near Chernobyl uh, area, they could actually keep still, could still be producing some electricity and keep it running while the the grid was out. Because again, it was a target for Russia, the big grid connection, big stations and so on. Um, And people already saw how actually renewables work. This is something that you produce uh, just up there above your head and then you consume it just there, right? And then you can call your neighbor to say in Kyiv, to say, I'm fine, we are still standing. and that also proved, again, very, very important during this winter's attacks. Um, and this also transformed into the, this way of thinking, what are, what are these big systems um, where, that again, that where Russia shows uh, actually what the nuclear energy terrorism could look like for the first time in history by occupying Europe's largest nuclear power plant. And at the same time, as a contrast, this resilience of the people and communities now who are asking to have... Uh, solar stations with storages um, on the roofs of the rooftops of their hospitals to make sure that they have enough electricity, at least the basic to cover the, at least the basic needs for the critical infrastructure because they know it works. Um, this is this this big change that happened. It's not even about innovation. This was your your main topic of the question, like, but it was more about things that already are there today. And Ukraine kind of shows how they actually make sense of how they can be used um, in probably not the most transformative ways, but they, how can they can be used differently? And I'm sure that many countries would actually follow Ukraine's example afterward.
0: i say tell uh, linking that idea of decentralization, of taking responsibility for your actions, you know, and your immediate environment, and then laddering that up with technology, I think these things are... So intimately connected. So I'm really interested that you sort of made that uh, sort of connection there. And... I think Finland's a great example because Finland has lived under the sort of uh, threat of the USSR for many decades since the Finnish war in the 20s and that sort of forced the Finns to become resilient yes but also to make sure they were self-sufficient in energy food and many other things and you know distribute that authority and capability to defend local communities in case you know Russia invade again so I think Great lessons there for Europe from both Ukraine and Finland, and and also you know learning from the Finnish example, very effective. And of course, the Finns don't have too many natural resources so they have to be very innovative in their economy you know how they create much more uh, uh you know sophisticated goods manufactured goods because the raw materials aren't aren't there for the kind of extraction economy that uh, that of course we know Russia is and which leads sometimes to extremely authoritarian governments but there are certain things as you were saying earlier that individuals just probably cannot deal with and these are some of the immediate aftermath of the war so do you expect there to be international support for things like demining um cleaning up the disturbed soil say in the Chernobyl exclusion zone and then all the sort of unexploded ordnance the shells the casings the heavy metals that kind of obvious fallout from the war Is that an area Ukraine is is seeking international support, expertise and funding to help clean up?
1: Definitely. Demining, of course, the basic need. And even though the reconstruction conference, you know, big conference with many governments, it was about rebuilding Ukraine. It was about, you know, the future plans. But we were still discussing demining because it is the basic need to actually restart anything, restart the life, restart the economy. Um, and we are talking about huge territories that would need to be demined. Um, so indeed, we heard from the international community, and know, the Switzerland also provided quite quite a big uh, chunk of money for demining for Ukraine and other countries. So <clears throat> this is discussed. So. Indeed, as far as the mining is concerned, um, this is the most basic thing uh, that Ukraine needs to rebuild anything and to, to return lives back. And even though this large conference in June uh, was all about, of course, reconstruction and big ideas uh, for the coming years for the future of Ukraine, uh, the mining was discussed um, and um, some countries pledged quite a big support already uh, to help Ukraine demine. We are talking about enormous territories, um, and of course, some some of them, for example, in, again in the north of Ukraine, where Russian forces just stayed for one month, but they brought the the, the you know the amount of damage. It was just it's just mind blowing. Uh, and, um, and again, the mines all over the, the place, in forests and everywhere. So uh, we need to, again, to make sure that the, all of that is cleaned up and then to be also managing more territories in the south, in the east and so forth. Um, so this is the basics and there there is international support. I cannot say I, how sufficient that is. I only know for sure that in terms of money, uh, uh, the government knows better probably, but we know for sure that this will, it will take years and years to demine to uh. Everything or not even everything, because some of the mines that were now, uh, you know, released in the flow with the Kakhovka dam explosion too, um, some of those mines that end up in the Black Sea, who knows how what's going to happen to them? They may end up just at the, at the bottom of the sea, and and, and who knows, may br- may bring actually some some destruction later on. Um, but in any case, as um, yeah, as far as other things are concerned and damages to the environment and if there is international support, I think we need another big conference to actually discuss this because this was not really a topic. Uh, but I hadn't really haven't heard much about it uh, those few weeks ago. It was more about the private investments, international engagement, how to provide security guarantees for the businesses who would come to Ukraine. These are all important however indeed the things we're discussing with you today they are as important again because they have an impact on, on not only on the bird species nature but on humans um and some of the examples you showed also with azovstal with mariupol who would be cleaning things up but this is a very big question indeed um and yeah we can we can also think about um chernobyl um also as a good example of the basically the, the 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 absence of understanding of Russians what they're actually even doing ah uh, when they when they came to Ukraine, they started digging the trenches right um in the Chernobyl area ah uh, to then get radiation to be sent to to, to belarus for uh, for treatment. Uh, these people don't even, sometimes I think, even understand, I guess the highest common understand what's happening, so they probably don't care about their people, this is something that we see generally speaking, and they definitely don't care about Ukrainians, um, well, as, as little. Um, but then again, Ukraine has to then manage all of the consequences, and this is why looking at what they did in Chernobyl, we can only hope, uh, but not only hope, I think here we also have to act and do everything possible the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Um, I don't even want to pronounce it. That nothing will happen there. Um, so let's let's keep it running. You know, the International Atomic Energy Agency. Maybe they just have to be living there with their whole staff to make sure that nothing. now they are already based there. They do some rotations. Maybe their head should should you know spend even more time there. Uh, but we really considering Russia breached all of the uh, international treaties possible. Um, we have to find all the all of the ways to to prevent even you know larger damages
0: and this is this is actually a talk I'm going to give you a heads up that I'm going to be having in a couple of weeks, and that's with an expert on the international atomic industry. And actually, Ross Atom has barely been sanctioned at all, And that's one of the great mysteries of uh, the sanctions regime. And if we want Russia to not go ahead and, destroy the Zaporizhia power plant, then we have this ideal lever, which could be to heavily sanction Ross Atom and say, well, if you do this, then you're done on the international atomic energy industry. But again, I'm not sure there's the real focus of world leaders. That wasn't going to be the question. That's just a heads up that we're going to we're going to hit that topic um, because I think it's crucially important. The last topic really is everything you've talked about seems to be contingent on victory so we have a huge number of people abroad it's important they return it's important they have inspiration they come back to a country that is has the funds to be rebuilt all of these things seem to me contingent including the foreign confidence the foreign funds they're all contingent on ukraine actually regaining all of its territories and not having any frozen conflict any doubt um it's total victory or many of these things may not actually happen.
1: Yes, <laughs> you're absolutely right. There is many, many challenges, and everything is indeed about the outcomes. Um, and I think that even though you probably have a very different audience, uh, people who listen to this podcast today they probably also are curious to learn more about Ukraine. And I think one of the absolutely inspiring things that i see what also keeps me running is how civil society in ukraine works during during this uh during these times and also how ukrainian cities are working um they are doing amazing things they still keep planning the, the you know cities still keep planning their future developing sustainable action plans looking for investments during the war time they do all of their best, you know, and everything that I always feel like uh, we need to support them. Definitely. We need to do to give them everything because these people are, you know, the heroes um, and at the same time civil society. And we have now uh, some of the civil society organizations who are also supporting the army and, and fundraising millions of dollars from from basically the population, but also from Ukrainian businesses and everything. It just doesn't exist anywhere in the world. So, um. With this, with with these people, it would be I think it would be impossible to um to lose because these people are all aimed for uh for the victory, um and they are rebuilding and as one the mayor of the city of Trostenes, that was occupied by Russian forces uh, during for the first month of of the invasion, uh it's in the Sumer region and he said we already rebuilt because everything was looted by Russians just you know uh, almost n- n- not a single shop or or administrative building was left with uh, with with you know computer like everything was looted but they say they already restored uh 60% of all of the destroyed facilities and uh, just give them one and one and a half years they will be done you know this is just to show you the level of of um belief uh, of people in themselves also in the country Ninety-five percent of the population returned to the city already, which is only thirty-five kilometers from Russia uh, from from Russian uh, border. Uh, and the mayor says, "We will be doing all of our best, you know, to be here to support the economy and the uh, the government and 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 the all of the you know national authorities. The only thing they should be thinking about is how to." kick Russians out basically how to win this war this is the this is where we are everybody's you know thinking that way so support for ukraine i think has to be the matter of actually looking at them i mean it's, it's inspiration but it's a matter of european security not only ukrainian security uh and it has to be clear that if ukraine stays strong uh, and it has to be a strong, a strong economy, as we discussed, uh, you know, an equal partner uh, with the EU, with the West. If it stays strong, then of course, Russia would think twice or thrice to actually attack or not attack again. So this is where we are aiming. Uh, if we are weak, this will be repeating again and again and again. Uh, and Poland knows this for sure. Baltic countries know this for sure. Uh, so ask them if you don't trust us because maybe something were too emotional. Um, so this is the idea and of course the underlying principle to to actually be building this economy, to actually returning people home is uh, indeed the victory and the peace um, and restoring territorial integrity of Ukraine. Um, so here you know w- whatever um, there is so many ways actually to help to support Ukraine at the moment uh to support civil society in Ukraine uh, who we'll work on all the different topics. Uh, you know, starting from environment to the social, uh, humanitarian aspects and so on. Yeah, but also Ukrainian cities, but also on the international level. If you work with ecocide, this is what we discussed today. Uh, try to actually, please try to uh, have this topic uh, again in the international agenda. Let's raise it and let's make sure that the ecocide is one of the international crimes um, and adopted by the UN and by all of the governments. So, yeah, so there is a lot to do on all of the all of the levels, and I'm sure this is the um this is our common fight for indeed uh, very international values for for humanity. Um, so we, we really have to win together because otherwise, I really don't know then when <laughs> why anything else makes sense.
0: Well, I found this conversation inspiring. Um, I thought it was gonna be incredibly depressing, but actually it's quite the reverse. It's, it's inspirational and I think it gives us cause to hope that some, if not all of the things we've discussed will see progress. And I think most people watching this channel do believe in a full maximalist Ukrainian victory. And I think what you've been able to do today is to describe why that is so important. Why all of these sort of progressions on the economy the environment fixing the horrific damage that Russia has inflicted, are all dependent on victory. And of course, we know there are other things uh, as well, including the return of refugees, the return of children who have been kidnapped. Many other things are contingent on this victory. So and I wanted to say the work you're doing is extraordinary, and I'm so glad you could take an hour out to help us understand it better.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to discuss with you.